Hello and welcome to the third season of How Does the Social Work, the podcast that brings the social back into social work. Our previous season was a collaboration between Brunel University social work students and the Ginger Giraffe user-led cooperative. In this season, our students take full control of the podcast. So, are you ready? Here we go. first episode of a new season of How Does the Social Work? In this season, we will take an international perspective on anti-racist social work. My name is Radhika and my co-host, Jade Blake. We are both second-year postgraduate social work students at Brunel University, London. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Kamai. Dr. Kamai holds various disciplines such as social theory, social psychology, and Indian religions. He is engaged in research at the Indian Institute of Advanced Studies and the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library. Dr. Kamai recently published an article called Anti-Racist Social Work Practice in India, which provides an excellent insight into anti-social work practice in India. It focuses on racism experienced by Mongolized Mongoloid Indians that reside in Northeast India. Dr. Kamai, please can you start by introducing yourself and what you what brought you to be interested in this area? We will provide the links to the articles and books in the show's comments, but for the sake of our listeners who didn't read it, can you start by summarizing your article? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Radhika, for giving me this opportunity uh, to talk and share uh, some of the thoughts that I have uh, accumulated through the long years of my uh, lived experiences with racism and also my understanding of the issue of racism through brief uh, literature reviews that are available in the current days. Well, I'm uh, from India. I uh, procured my PhD from Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Mumbai. After that, I, uh, for a very long years, I have been engaged in uh, researching on various issues, especially uh, on the issues of marginalized communities of uh, country, especially the tribals. And I also belong to the tribal community. And uh, at present, I'm teaching in and also researching in a research institute, which is called Govind Development Social Science uh, Institute, uh, which is a constituent institute of the University of Allahabad here in Uttar Pradesh. And recently, I got a book published, uh, which is also on the marginalized community. That is my community. I belong to the Kabui tribe. And I wrote a book on the various belief systems of the Kabui tribe there, who, who are also called Rongmai. So broadly, my research interests are in the areas of religion, identity, uh, concerning the marginalized communities of India. And I also have got immense interest on the issues of racism. And my interest on racism, in fact, was uh, propelled by my lived experiences during my days in, uh, during my college days in Delhi, uh, when I was pursuing my undergraduate course, starting from 2003. I was in Delhi for five years. So those were the days when I actually faced the issues of racism. And well, I never reflected on the issues of racism theoretically when I was experiencing, but I started understanding racism when I was pursuing my PhD degree because I continued to experience racism even in the institute where I did my master's and PhD at 
KISS in Mumbai. So though it was no not very rampant as in Delhi, but all these experiences of racism, uh, especially because of my looks, because people who looks who look like us or people who look similar to the Chinese are often racialized. So that is how I began to read and began working on the issues of racism. I um I think it's very interesting, actually, that you brought up your own experiences of racism and you've talked a lot about your tribe experiencing this in your article. And I just wanted to take to the famous case you spoke about, Nido Tanya. Yeah, that, Nido Tanya. Yeah, thank you, that was killed. I read about it and it was very sad and it's due to the way he looks. Again, like... Yeah drawing onto your experience so but I also know that that this death had like it sparks like a, a committee batch barua batch yeah. barua committee yeah so my question is is like how does something tragic have to happen in India for racism to be acknowledged or what can social workers or professional bodies do to help India to recognize the existence of racism yeah, this is this is a point that I would like to emphasize. Yes, you have rightly pointed out that there seemed to be a need for some drastic incident. For instance, the death of a young boy, Nidotania, from Arunachal Pradesh. In fact, there were already dead. There were already severe problems even before the death of Nidotania. For instance, the massive migration or the massive running away of the students in the year 2012, two years before the death of this Nidotania. In fact, what compounded to the problem of racism accompanied by the death of this person, Nido Tanya, is also the fact that his father was a politician. Had it been, had it been uh, the case of an ordinary family, I don't think that such an important incident or such, a, such an important consequence would have been uh, witnessed in the form of the constitution of the Bejbarwa Committee at a national level. Yes, it's very unfortunate that the problem of denial of racism, which I call denial of racism, is very rampant. And I here I would like to bring in the the present problem that we now read in newspapers, uh, the issue of racism, the alleged racism in Canada against the Indians. Here, the government of India is involving in highlighting or in trying to convince the Canada government that it is a problem of it is an issue of racism. But the Canada government has very unequivocally stated that, no, it is not a problem of racism, but it is a problem of, I call it, misunderstanding. So this is, this is not something typical of Canada or any country which we conventionally say are the countries of the whites. This we find even in our country also. When the problems of racism was very rampant in our country in India, uh, the, one of the union ministers, one of the union ministers of India said that it was a problem which involves a local goons. So once it is labeled as problems involving local goons, then it's clearly swept away from the ambit of racism. And I would like to bring in here the work of this Rita Manchanda, the, the no-nonsense guide to minority rights in South Asia, who says that in order to resolve the problem of minorities, we must acknowledge the minority first one once if that is done then the problems associated problems can also be acknowledged until and unless you acknowledge the existence or the identity of the minority you cannot get engaged in 
resolving the problems faced by the minorities. And I think in this context, what we social workers, what we professional social workers can do is very actively engage in conscientizing the politicians, especially the politicians. No matter how much we try to enlighten the co-social workers or the public, unless the politicians are ready to pull up their sleeves, there is no scope, there is no hope. And unfortunately, that is the hard fact that we all encounter. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, yeah, that is, I think I share with that understanding that that is the unfortunate reality that there's only so much, I guess, social workers and even individuals that face oppression can do because it, it's up to the um, policy makers yeah. to change the policies that caters or over, like, that will tackle with racist practice. Even within, it's not just, just over racism we even talk about institutionalized racism like it's not even recognized and for them to say it's a misunderstanding it's almost like they're sweeping the issue under the rug so yeah, yeah. I guess beyond the social work realm and the individuals you've you said to like network of like-minded organizations what organizations would you recommend for countries such as India to network so there's maybe a bit more recognition or more pressure on the, the politicians to see there is an issue of racism. So uh, if we, uh, I just would like to bring in here again, the work by Robert Adams, Social Policy for Social Work. Here, Robert Adams clearly says that the social, uh, social work is nothing but the implementation of the policies of the state. So which means that we social workers tend, tend to do what the state wants us to do. And there is also a complementary roles being played by the state and also the social workers or the social work because whatever we social work do is something which is in fact already prescribed by the policy that is the policy makers so in that case we and also the fact that we social workers for anything that we do for any work that concerns the empowerment of the people or even the work of a clinical social work okay I think everything is dependent on the policy of the government. And also, we are also dependent on the resources provided by the state. So in that case, we are not completely free from the whims of the state. We tend to do what the state demands us, demands us to do. So in that case, it is very difficult for us to say that we social workers alone can be the torchbearer of anti-racist social work. So I would, I would say that there are many other civil organizations like who can provide us, who can provide the victims, who can provide the state and also the citizens a very uh, common platform where they can come together, the public space. Public space is, is very much required. Public space is very much required for free flow of discourses between and amongst the policymakers and the victims of and, uh, victims of racism. And I think it's very important for various uh, organizations. Now, if, we, uh, if I come back to the context of India, I think there are certain organizations which are not liked by the certain group or certain religious group because of the differences in the ideologies, because of the purported uh, subscription of particular organization to particular religious beliefs or doctrines. But nevertheless, there are certain organizations, though they are often labeled as 
religious organization, though they may be termed as organization of a specific religion, but they are so influential, they are so powerful, they are so and they are so uh, you know endemic that we cannot ignore the presence at the grassroots level. So I think if they are if they are the organization which is accepted by the people, I think we should also social workers should also make a compromise, should also compromise to some extent and also get ourselves involved even with religious organizations. Okay, by associating ourselves with religious organizations, it doesn't mean that we are subscribing to the religious belief. For instance, I'm a Christian. There is no problem as a social worker, as Christian, to get myself uh, involved with the activities of other religious organizations, if those religious organizations are widely accepted and it is, if the, those organizations are not uh, banned by the state. So that should be used as tools for us. The basic objective that social workers should have in the mind is that the message is reached to the people and the message also reaches the policy makers. So no matter what, whether it is a registered organization or whether it is a local level organization, national organization, I think we should be ready to work with various organizations. That's how I underscore the significance of networking. For that, I'm just wondering because you talked a lot about the division that's taking place within in India, and I'm just wondering because I know that the climate in the UK and India might be different, but I know that in the UK, when there's a push for certain things, there's lots of social unrest, I guess you could say. So, a lot of social media action, a lot of you know, unexpected ways that people, normal civilians or people in certain professions are able to put pressure on the government for them to act. And I'm just wondering, I'm not sure um, of what the climate is like in India, but do you guys also have the possibility of maybe the people coming together or using social media or using different avenues? Like, what do you think? Because I'm just trying to think of what would be a way to sort of force the government into action. Like, what would be that push that finally gets them to listen or to, um, I guess, amend or to improve the way things are at the moment. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not really optimistic in envisioning the change in the state in the near future. But I think hope is also very important because the kind of society that we see, uh, not just in India but across the globe with the contemporary problems, the economic problem of recession, we, we find that there are always consequences of social problems with the problem of economic problems. So I think this is something which is endemic across the globe. And it's not just the issue of any specific country. So it's very difficult for us because no matter how much we try, no matter how much the government also try, if there are international factors that uh, impedes them if there are international factors that impedes them from taking up any positive actions. It's very difficult for us to, uh, for professional social workers to put pressure on the government. But nevertheless, the pressure must act in such a way that it is uh, understood by the government at all times that it is an accident issue that needs to be taken care of because 
uh, racism and economic racism, economic recession cannot go together because for the nation to prosper economically, there is also a need for equity and equality, which are uh, in fact solutions to social problems. Yes, it's very difficult. It's very difficult because the government cannot just do what social workers demand. Well, there are certain things that perhaps we do not know when, when we are not here. You know, when they are not in, when we are not in their position, perhaps we may not be able to understand the kind of political problems, economic problems that the government is facing. But nevertheless, what I'm trying to say is that at least on the part of the social workers, since we social work, we social workers uh, work with the state policy, with the state, with the state, uh, through the state policies. I think it is also our role that no matter what, we should not relinquish our role of influencing the state constantly, no matter how long it takes. But I think hope is something that I would like to emphasize here. Hi, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I like that you mentioned about hope, that, that yeah, we shouldn't, we shouldn't give up. We should still strive to change, to see a change. And yeah, that's something that we should definitely hold on to as social workers and as people that potentially have an influence on policymaking. Um, so I would just like to take you to a different part of the article where you talked about like different ways to tackle anti-racist social work practice. And I just wanted to ask you if you could explain what the term um, reverse racism is and if you could give an example of where re reverse racism could happen. Often media, in media we find the problem of racism uh, being captured by them when it has a potential to, you know, generate interest at the national level. But there are many issues of racism which we do not witness in media. Often, for instance, now I I I wouldn't even I wouldn't say that we are the only group of people in India who face racism. But there are problems of what I call reverse racism, because uh, if we look into the problems that are being faced by people settled in the peripheries of the country, especially in what I call the northeastern region, the place where I come from. We also find that people who are originally from the northern, western, or central parts of India are also settled in this so-called northeastern part of India. And it is here that they also face the kind of problems that can be labeled as racism. But the kind of racism that they experience there is very much different from the kind of racism that we face here. For instance, the kind of racism that we people who look similar to the Chinese face here in other parts of the country, especially in the metropolitan, is what I, what we can call as color racism. But the problem which are faced by the people from this north and western and central parts of India, especially the Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Madhya Pradesh, all these people who are settled in these northeastern parts of India, they also face what can be termed, uh, what can be termed as political racism, because they're in a place in northeastern region. The political issues, especially the problem of uh, the movement of the external right for self determination, is very strong, and because of that, the arm, the various uh, certain armed groups are very much. You know, very much concerned with the presence of the people from other parts of the country, especially from outside the northern region. So there is a problem of reverse racism because they also feel that the problem of racism faced by the people from the northern 
uh, part of India in other parts of the country should also be tackled there against those people who are settled there, who are from other parts of the country. So the, the problem of reverse racism is very critical and it's sometimes, sometimes I feel that as a social worker, I feel very helpless when I cannot do anything for uh, for the people or when I can't speak up much for the people who face racism in our place. So this must be taken care of by the professional social workers and it is a social problem. I, I would like to emphasize again and again that racism is a social problem and clinical social work is something I think it is very much beyond the ambit of racism. And what we can at least do is get the help of other professionals, psychologists and other uh, medical psychiatrists. They can help us uh, at dealing at the individual level. But the issue of racism, that's why I'm linking the problem racism with the movement of an external right of self-determination. So racism is a political issue. It's not just a psychological issue. So it is very much there. Thank you for shedding light on racism in a different way because in your article, and I thought it was really interesting, you talked about the genesis of anti-racist social work. And you talked about that it, you know, how it was traced back due to the racist social um, movements that was, you know, the depression and discrimination of black people against, and the struggle that black people had, had against white people. But um, I think that it's very interesting that you talked about critical race theory being very um, Afrocentric. And I think it is really important that we sort of look at the other elements that racism takes in as well, because I do think, especially in the West, we tend to talk about um, racism in a way where it's very much white people, black people, or just very obvious things where your article brings light to the religion and the different um, aspects where it's, where it's colorism among the same race or different religions that are operating in one country. And it's, I just think it's really interesting. And thank you for, for shedding light on that. What I wanted to sort of ask is, would it? do you think it would be beneficial for some of the tribes that you talked about, maybe tribes similar to yours, do you think it would be beneficial for there to be uh, individual pushback would it be beneficial for some of those tribes to fight for their rights or would it maybe be dangerous for them to even try to um, fight for their rights in a, a certain way no i don't see any uh, any danger in fighting for one's right when uh, if it is contextualized uh, it, uh, on the issue of racism yes Definitely, there are problems when the marginalized communities raises their political rights issues. When I say political rights issues, I am referring to the prominent pro political problems that we witness in my region. That is the external right of self-determination. If I, I, I don't know whether you have heard of the community, the group Naga, and Naga is a group to which I also belong to because Naga comprises various uh, various tribes. And uh, since 1947, the Nagas have been uh, fighting against uh, the government of India under various organizations like the National uh, Naga National Council, the Naga National Socialist Council. Uh, so, if we are to say that 
if 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 I would say that the marginalized communities or the tribals can uh, have to raise their voices for such political issues, in fact, it is very much problematic. Yes, for instance, we have the issue of Armed Forces Special Powers Act in our region, which uh, is very draconian and which is very disastrous for the public and, and also even for the armed forces. I wouldn't say that it is only it is harmful only for the public, but it is harmful even for the armed forces also because uh, it causes what I think uh, moral defeat on the part of the armed forces. And, but when I say that the uh, the marginalized groups or the tribals or the minorities, they should fight for the political rights. Yes, they can do that, and I don't see any danger in fighting for the political rights if those uh, those political rights are not uh, against the constitution. For instance, fighting against racism is not anti-constitutional. So I think racism is something that, uh, though the government of India has not very widely accepted uh, to be prevalent in India. In fact, the Ministry of Women and Child Development had already uh, accepted in media that there is racism in, in India, but it has not been widely accepted at the national level or at the government, central government level that there is racism in India. Often there is a denial, but there is no threat to activists fighting against racism. And I think that is the reason why. So, so And I wonder why in India, uh, until now, there is no prominent social workers or there is no prominent movement against racism in India, which is spearheaded by social workers. And saying this, I also put myself in the same group because till now I have not, in fact, get, uh, got myself into any uh, activism against racism apart from writing. So uh, this is, this is uh, again, this again reflects the weakness of social workers. When we are into the field of research, we are somehow detached from activism, which is in fact, I feel the soul of social work uh, because activism, without activism, social work, I think has, uh, has no complete meaning. And unfortunately, on the other hand, those social workers who are activists who are taking up the role of activists. Unfortunately, they are also uh, not able to produce the kind of literature which is very much required in a movement because any political movement, let us say anti-racist uh, movement, do require literature. And I do not see much literature on racism in India. And I have mentioned in my article by Sneza, Gune, I don't know how to pronounce it, but Sneza Gune also mentions that uh, the kind of literature that we find in India is prominently on racism, is prominently on the, or, or, I mean, not just in India, the kind of race, uh, literature that we find on the issue of racism is prominently of the problems of African-Americans or the Blacks. So I have not seen any very significant or, or very uh, crucial literature on the issues of racism in the Indian context, meaning issue of racism faced by Indians in India, but there are a plethora of literature on 
the issue of racism faced by Indians in other parts of the globe. Unfortunately, this is the scenario that we have. So I think for social workers, there is an immense scope to engage in this political movement, meaning anti-racist social work or anti-racist movements. This is a wide scope that is uh, green enough pasture for social workers to be engaged in any active uh, activism in India. I think there is no threat from the state to get uh, ourselves engaged in this kind of activism. Hi, um, Dr. Kumar. I think that's a really interesting point that you made is the lack of um, awareness that racism can exist amongst Indians, amongst Indians, as opposed to just Indians in other countries. I'm My mum is Malaysian, my dad Sri Lankan, and I always mm. wonder to myself, if I um, grew up in India, I would feel that I would actually face more racism than if when I when in the country that I'm currently now in England. And I think in England, there is a multicultural um, community that kind of embraces different cultures as such. But in India, I think there's, like you said, there was a denial of racism. So it's never, if you, if I, if someone was to call me darky, I don't think they would realize that they were being racist as such. And you even talk about how the Northeast people metro cities, they, they according to the Bezerro committee report, that they experience racism where they'll be called, have loose morals or they eat pigs and dogs and they pollute our children. So it's like there, I feel like in India, like the racism, like it's what was being coined as like misunderstanding, even though it is racism. But I think the people that perpetrate racist remarks or act in a racist manner, they, they're thinking that their intention behind it is that they want to be purists. They want to keep the country pure Indians. They don't want anyone to come and, I guess, pollute, which is a very harsh word, but that's how what's going in their mindset. So my question is, how do we in, educate individuals to be aware, no, you're actually, this is this is racist. This is racism. You're, the, the way you're thinking, the way you're talking about other um, races is is racism. How do we educate individuals, even from young, to be aware of their racism or their biases? Yes, India also embraces multiculturalism. Yes, very much. But as I have said earlier also, that no nation is an exception when it comes to the issue of racism. So I just would like to keep that first. Yes, uh, coming to the... Uh, Coming to the point that you raised, how do we educate the individuals, or especially those uh, who propagates or and perpetuates racism? I think uh, there is no there is no uh, one single answer to this. But let me cite from the example uh, from my lived experience. Uh, as I was telling you, that I started staying in Delhi since uh, from from two thousand three, and. It was a very hard time for me staying in Delhi in such a very unfriendly environment because every time you move out, you're called Chinki, Nepali, and all those Chinese and making all those uh, uh, queer sounds uh, to resemble how the Chinese speak. So it's very irritating. And yes, I must also accept that this is not uh, the issue at the individual level for me to engage 
with each and every individual that would be really unrealistic. So now, if we look at the incident of 2014, the Nido Tania, the death of Nido Tania, after that, the constitution of the Bejbarwa committee and various actions were uh, taken up by the state, meaning by the government. For instance, one very important state which I would like to appreciate here, the government of India is the recruitment of, <clears throat> excuse me, the recruitment of people from so-called Northeast India into uh, the Delhi police force. So now if you go to Delhi, you'll find that people uh, from the northeastern part of India, including girls, okay, both boys and girls, they are being recruited and they are being uh, they are being posted in different police stations and then they travel in police vehicle in the nook and corner of Delhi and they represent the face of the marginalized Indians. Now, uh, unlike unlike those days of 2012, 14, 2005, 6, 7, 8, those unlike those days, I realized that after I after I uh, after uh, when I came back again to Delhi in 2014 after my PhD, I realized that I did not face the kind of racism I used to face as prominent as before when I was uh, in Delhi for the first time. I used to travel in bus and I started realizing that people have somehow changed. And it's all because of the steps taken by the government because there are now initiatives undertaken by the local uh, or the locals of Delhi in which they used to invite people from the Northeastern region who are settled in their uh, area and then they invite him to their local festivals and then they are also frequent or annual organized uh, annual northeast festivals in which the locals be, uh, the locals are also invited especially the politicians i think that's why i was saying that without the intervention of the state it is not possible at all for any substantial or enduring change in India uh, concerning the issue of racism. And at individual level, it will be very difficult at individual level. What we can do at the most is to counsel and help those both culprit and uh, victim of racism through counseling. And I think this is not the realm of the social workers. So I think we should be engaged in political issues, the larger social issues. We should emphasize on the sociality of the problem of racism not on the individual consequences of racism and i think it is primarily through education and through policy okay through policy and through education that india can see a more inclusive multiculturalism though we already have but we need to make it more inclusive a more vibrant multiculturalism thank you for that i just wanted to ask and i know that we are you know, wanting to be hopeful and looking to the, the future for you know more political change and more political actions um, for for India and for in order to create change. But I'm just wondering, what are the social workers' methods currently like? What do the social work? How are social workers able to help at the moment? 
even if it's not in the way that they would like, what are the current methods in help and service users um, with their social issues or with, with issues of racism or dealing with um, maybe the after effects of um, having to live with severe racism? Is there what's currently been being done in India? It is very disheartening to say this, that there is no substantial work being done by the social workers in India to address the issue of racism. Unfortunately, uh, many uh, social workers, uh, well, many social workers may not agree with me, with my observation, but let me put it forward that many of the Indian social workers are deeply engrossed with what I would call clinical social work and also with what is called CSR, corporate social responsibility. Because India is not a very rich country, though the GDP or the economy is now ahead of the UK as we read in newspaper. But the fact is that India is still a poor country and many are very, many, many, many are unemployed. And so the basic purpose of education, as I see, is for job, for livelihood. So which means that when you are a trained professional social worker and when you get yourself engaged in uh, active political activism, it's not very easy to get funding from the state because, well, the Supreme Court of India has already said that it is not illegal or it is not unconstitutional to say or to raise a voice against the policy or the government, though it is international to raise a voice against the nation. But unfortunately, social work profession is still not very lucrative in India, as in the Western countries where clinical social work is very prominent. But in India, the problem that we face in India is very much social, is more of a social nature. So it's very difficult for us to get ourselves in, engaged in other political activities or other political activism. Of course, I have already said that there is no much issue uh, in getting ourselves being an activist in order to fight against the issue of racism. But there are many other problems which social workers can, you know, engage with. For instance, the problem of uh, the issue of the external right of self-determination. You know, that is a political issues that is of the demand for the separate state, demand for the separate nation. All these are also social problems, which has got very significant uh, political uh, colors in it. But nevertheless, those are the problems we should be engaging with. But those are the areas where we will not be getting any support from the state. So it is very risky for us to get engaged in those kind of problems. And it is not just in India, it is across the, across the globe. It's very difficult to engage in uh, those political uh, activism, which the state might construe as anti-national and because of which social workers may not get any funding once. If there is a shortage of funding, it is very impossible. It is very difficult and might be even impossible to get ourselves engaged in any kind of political activism. But social workers should also be engaged in political issues. I don't know whether I answered your question. <laughs> Yes, no, thank you. You answered it. Thank you very much. Just thank you for that because it's it's definitely provided a lot of clarity. 
on or of what you call clin clinical social work. I just wanted to know, because I know that you've noted that although you noted what needs to be done and you're saying that there is definitely a need for political um, activism, because that's, like you said, until decide to really take a stand, so it's very much going to be that social problem. I asked you earlier about the reverse racism. I'm just wondering, because you said that care must be taken to avoid reverse racism. What care would that be? Because it's just just for clarity's sake, when you say that care must be taken to avoid reverse racism. And the issue of reverse racism, yes. As I have uh, also mentioned before, that there are people who face racism because in which uh, people belonging to their group, on the other hand, are also culprit of racism. There is no uh, clear cut in my mind what steps should be taken to re uh, avoid clear uh, to avoid uh, what I call reverse racism, but what I uh, mean to say here when I say that care must be taken to avoid uh, reverse racism is that sometimes sometimes we professional social workers we sometimes become very uh, you know pessimistic about what is happening around us and we sometimes become very parochial in our outlook and sometimes our understanding of the problems may not be sufficient for us to get ourselves engaged in active activism against racism, and because of which we might start we might start thinking of uh, helping only those people who share common culture or language or you know common interest. So, for instance, I come from the northeastern part of India, the so-called northeastern part of India. Sometimes I I must admit here that sometimes I feel very hopeless and I feel a sense of dejection when I experience the problem of racism and sometimes I feel very uh, angry with those people, meaning those culprits of racism and sometimes I, as a human being, I'm first a human being before I'm a social worker. As a human being I sometimes used to be very angry with those uh, group of people. Sometimes I'm not able to identify a single person who is a culprit of racism. It is very difficult for me to say that this, 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 this are the culprits of racism. I also tend to get engaged in the process of social comparison. I compare myself with uh, the group who are committing racism. And I get myself engaged in negative comparison. I identify myself with the victims of racism. And I also get myself, you know, in the process of identifying the victims of racism phenotypically. I say to myself, yes, I also look like them. And I sometimes feel that I also commit racism, at least in my thought, because when I feel a sense of deception, when nothing is happening, when I constantly face racism, when nothing is happening, when the state is also dominated by the people who I perceive to be belonging to the group to which the culprits of racism also belong. So 
we must be very careful about this. Well, uh, I have not, I have not, let me be honest here, I have not committed racism against those uh, group of people to which uh, the, victim, uh, the culprits of racism belongs. But I can't help myself sometimes because I also get in, uh, I also practice racism at least in thought because it is what is called uh, moral defeat. But nothing is happening. There is a moral defeat. That's why I say that there is a need to avoid moral lethargy. And such moral lethargy at the sight of helplessness of our activities should not render us to get uh, uh, engaged in reverse racism. Thank you for that. And I think that last point that you made was really important, um, even for social workers such as myself and Radhika and many others, because I think it's easy to find yourself sometimes when you're not a part of the ruling class of wherever you are. I think it as social workers and you know when we will future social workers and we go out into the world and we are going to be having to help different types of people whether they be white whether you know any color and i think it's important to we're going to have to have that internal battle with ourselves to make sure that we're treating them the way we would any other or maybe not to show any favoritism yeah. towards anybody that may um, that we may sympathize with or so it becomes quite difficult I think for um, for social workers in general and I think it's a, a really like I'm interested and I'm really enjoying that point that you made because it's something that I'm going to keep on my mind um, and I think all social workers should really because I think we all have the potential to almost dabble in reverse racism if we're not very careful so yeah, I yeah. That, um, that last point is really interesting is there anything else that you wanted to add just for the purpose of the podcast? Is there anything else that you wanted to to say um, just for us, for us over here in the West who aren't um, knowledgeable in the things that are uh, perhaps taking place on the other side of the world? In social? Yeah. Uh, uh, as a last point uh, before we conclude, I think that uh, there has been a constant attack against the professionalism of social work. In fact, in India also, the University Grants Commission had said that uh, social work uh, is not a, it is not a professional, it is not a professional course that deserves a scholarship from the government. And it is not just in India, it, it you know, uh, it also happened even in the Western countries also. So, I think there is a constant struggle amongst the social workers to lift up to the professionalism. What is, uh, you know, to ascribe to our profession, uh, to ascribe to social work, the quality of professionalism. And I think here in this context, I think I would like to emphasize on the sociality of social work rather than the individuality. And here, uh, the famous book by uh, Mark Courtney, Harry Speck and Mark Courtney, Unfaithful Angels, how social work has given up, has abandoned its uh, profession. I think that book is very still relevant and it is relevant across the globe. And I think uh, it is very unfortunate to say that uh, 
social work, especially in the Western countries, are still emphasizing on clinical social work. And uh, while the issue of the human beings are assuming more of a, or has been more of a social nature. So I think there is, if uh, the Western countries, which I believe is the parent of social work profession, could also emphasize more on the sociality of the problems that we face rather, and then get ourselves engaged in social problems rather than the clinical problems. I think that will be a very important help and a very important inspiration for the African and the Asian countries, because sometimes we find uh, completely lost at reading the literature that emerges, that emerged from the Western countries that emphasizes on clinical social work, especially the uh, National Association of Social Work. If we look their journals, they emphasize primarily the clinical problems. So I, sometimes I feel very difficult to locate the kind of understanding of social work that I have uh, developed based on my understanding of the social problems in the Indian context. So I think in order to uh, acquire the professionalism of social work, I think we should go back to the sociality of social problems and not try to overemphasize the individuality of the social problem. Thank you for sharing the overarching um, theme of your article, which is emphasizing on social problems as opposed to just looking at the individual and I think this is a concept that can be shared not just in India but globally as you said so um, we're, we're going to wrap it up but we're really appreciative of you taking the time to come on the podcast and share your article and share your thoughts and me and Jade have definitely learned a lot and it's something we can take on as future social work practitioners and, you know, as I hope that also everyone that's listening, that they can also take it on board. And yeah, so thank you so much. Is there anything you want to add, Jade? No, I think you, you've got it all there. But again, learned so much from reading the article. And I do suggest that people go have a read um, of the article because it was very insightful. And thank you so much for um, just adding and the discourse that we've had today. It's been, it's been really enlightening. So thank you. It's nice talking to you, Dr. Kamai. Thank you so much, Radhika, for inviting me. And also thank you, Jay, for patiently listening. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting. Thank you. And I'd just like to say a big thank you to Dr. Kamai for joining us today. How Does the Social Work is produced by Yohai Hakak and edited by Vima Dalal. If you like our podcast, please give us a like and share it with your friends. To find out more about Brunel's social work programme, please check out our web page at brunel.ac.uk forward slash social work or follow us on Facebook or Twitter for more. Goodbye until our next episode.